Welcome everybody to the Scale the Good podcast. Today I'm doing this session from University of Oxford and speaking to somebody very, very special who's on the other side. Um, people call it the other place, which is the University of Cambridge. She is Professor Shelija Fennell, a professor in regional transformation and economic security, and also the director of the Center of South Asian Studies. Welcome, Professor Shalaja, and thank you so much for taking time off on a very, very busy week for you to join us today to have this conversation. Um, to begin with, Professor, if you could please expand on your work and interest in South Asia, I think that'll be a great starting point for us to begin this conversation. Thank you so much, Randula. So yeah, I'm Shalaja Fennell, and I'm trained as an economist, and I work largely on the sustainability challenges for rural-urban transformations. Uh, mostly in countries in the global south, and uh, largely my own fieldwork has been in Asia and more recent decades in Africa. The particular interest that I have is the consequences for food security and for sustainable food systems, not only as the world becomes urban, but also as we move towards high-skilled jobs in the global north, the implications of that for the global south. And the particular twist in the tail at the moment is the current climate crisis, and the implications of that for another round of global discussions around adaptation and mitigation, and the implications that too will have for diversity in food at a time where we are stuck with increasing food prices, greater fluctuations in food, and an increasing monoculture in a very few crops. That's an amazing plethora of work. I'm sure there's never a dull day, firstly, <laughs> in your day's work. And I think I've been very, very uh, fortunate to really listen to a, a full session of yours of where you unpacked a bit of this work, as well as re research, going into the deeper roots uh, of the problems that we face as uh, South Asian economies. Drawing from that conversation, Professor, I would like to dive right in to one particular thing. Um, I think that kind of covers all the topics that you're really working on, which is us as the global south really importing the first world problems without solving our own ecological problems. Um, this is something that you beautifully articulated in your, uh, in your talk to uh, us before as well. I would really like to go into uh, a deeper insight in this. And uh, if you can just outline in your opinion, what does this really mean when you say that? Um, and then we can uh, roll on the conversation from there. That's such an important question, Randula, at the moment. So we've had about three quarters of a century of development now, independent development in uh, countries of South Asia. And in the early decades, it was presumed that if we followed industrialization patterns like that had been done by the countries of the global north, having attained independence, we would get the same results. So the presumption was, get rid of colonialism and economic growth will ensue. By the second half of the second half of the 20th century, so by the 80s, this was becoming clear that while we had increased food production and had moved to industrialization, both uh, industrialization and agricultural modernization were incomplete. So in terms of my focus on rural urban transitions, the incomplete transitions at both ends. So there are people now moving to the urban area in the factory sector, but there's a growing informal sector in that urban space. And in the rural economy, there's a push to producing rice, wheat, and maize, 
but there isn't a thinking about integrated rural development. And so in countries like Sri Lanka, like India, like Bangladesh, um, like Pakistan, challenges that emerged in the 1990s, the agricultural sector seems to be running out of steam. Young educated adults in rural uh, areas want to move to urban areas, but then they're confronted by this uh, increasing inability to find jobs that they wish to have. And so we get a frustrated young population, which should have been a source of wealth for the country. But equally, we get a scenario uh, which is emerging by the end of the 20th century, another quarter century on, that not only have we had some of the challenges of incomplete uh, modernity, but our notion of modernity, which is being like high-income countries, is also in itself flawed. Mm. Because eating more doesn't mean eating healthy. Also, the classic consumption bundle across South Asia, which is one of the centers, like parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, East Africa, West Africa, in terms of the diversity of foods, highest biodiversity that is available in the global South, whereas the global North has denuded that in the 200 years of industrialization that preceded. And so we see what's quite, um, if it wasn't so serious, it would be almost amusing that we get the problems of the first world, like obesity, impacting those very deciles of the population that are not fully at high income status. So part of this is um, the global supply, which says, you know, eat polished rice and wheat. Part of it's our own practices of what we see as social mobility. And as a consequence, what we have is in the past, globally, before the 18th century, people who are larger than others regarded as wealthy people. Now we get the poor because of the perverse prices, eating far more empty calories and also being pushed in a direction where they are no longer able to and it's no longer appreciated the traditional food practices they have. So they're between a hard a rock and a hard place. So that there are two types. One is incomplete industrialization, what kind? And the second is the transition crisis. If you put these together, what is being... Uh, identified is that there's a sustainability crisis and livelihoods. We really have not thought about employment generation, about asset creation, which mm -hmm. is more relevant, be it in the houses we build, which are typically built with cement or with tin. Uh, we don't use the methods, be it yes. in how we manage our natural resources, which also follow a global template. And I'm not North bashing. I'm simply saying that the ecologically appropriate forms of human behavior and human mm -hmm. construction and livelihoods have been falling by the wayside to our own disadvantage. Absolutely. And um, I mean, I relate to this so much because I, I do a lot of work uh, on the ground working with people who are creating this change um, uh, through um, creating conscious consumers as well as conscious entrepreneurs. Um, the way to really break through uh, the social consensus of uh, what good food looks like, what what food is good for you as opposed to what food is um, known to be good and appealing and, and you know, um, uh, worthy uh, is completely different and contrast. And we've lost so much uh, in the transition in, in a matter of just one generation, I would say. Um, and, and now we are looking for our roots. Now we are searching for where our food comes from and what practices we have to consume them that my mother's generation is completely unaware of. And there is a lot of knowledge that really got lost in that transition. Um, and at the cost of, I think, the health of our planet, but also the health of our people. 
Um, if you take a look at um, diseases, um, even like diabetes and cancer, um, there's a massive increase uh, in our economies where, where these diseases have really trickled down even into babies. Um, so I think the damages that we've created in a matter of just 60, 50 years um, will take a lot for us to reverse. Um, and I just want to touch onto that right now. Um, in terms of um, South Asia, um, what would, in your opinion, what would be the largest unaddressed ecological problem as of now? And what stands in the way for us to address that? I'm going to come to this laterally because I was very fascinated by where you began. So um, on recent trips to Sri Lanka, um, it became clear to me the shift between, as you said, what the parental or grandparent generation ate. Because on one occasion, I was able to eat at the home of one of my PhD students. And his mother had made many more dishes that had leaves in them. Mm. And eating of leaves, you know, that the the traditional uh, um, in knowledge coming from the global north is, oh, you should eat more concentrated foods, more high fat foods, more because this is a poor part of the world. Mm. But actually eating fresh leaves has all the nutrients of a fresh product, even more than, say, root vegetables, because they, that's why animals typically eat the freshest leaves. And so there are many micronutrients. And as you rightly said, um, not only is the eating of a greater carbohydrate-based diet giving rise to uh, diabetes, but also the micronutrients per unit of consumption have gone down hugely because we don't eat a balanced plate. So when you ask from that proposition, what are the greatest ecological crises? It's about the stewardship of the natural world. When you eat and grow and you are aware that what is being grown is affected uh, literally by every engagement with the soil and the water, there's a, a both an economic and an ecological region that, a reason that goes side by side and they intertwine. So obviously, if you have better quality products, which are also appreciated by others in the community or even regionally, they will sell for a higher price. It's a very sensitive market. And as most of us know, the fruits and vegetables that we eat in South Asia may not be globally exported, or certainly were not till 20 years ago, as the South Asian diaspora went abroad and wanted those foods. Yes. And so there was a great value for market things that we valued ourselves and consumed. Hmm. As a consequence of globalization in the last 20 years, and I'm not saying it's negative, but it's, we need to recognize this. There's also an aspiration for a global plate, mm -hmm. which should not necessarily mean losing the local plate. So in the food space and equally in the agricultural production space, there's a movement to this monoculturization of thinking and a monoculturization of production. That is problematic for human beings, but also problematic for the environment. Mm -hmm. Because every time you have an ecological shock, we are less able to create other seeds and products that could replace. So we are impoverishing ourselves nutritively, but also impoverishing the environment by losing our ability to be good stewards of the natural world. Absolutely. So in your opinion, I think um, deriving from, from your answer, it's in one sense the habitual, the food habits that has really changed um, as an adaptation to the mono uh, agriculture, like the industrial agric agriculture that really grew um, and became a trend, so to speak. Um, I mean, bread now really is bread for what it is and not because there is scarcity uh, to begin with. 
Um, and on the other hand, the monoculture damages that creates um, that is created in our soil, in our earth, and all the other species of plants that um, are supposed to grow in our environment, which doesn't grow anymore or doesn't have a conducive environment to grow anymore because of um, these um, new species that has come in and, and uh, grown as a monocultural environment. Um, now, I know coming from Sri Lanka, it's a small country, a tiny country compared to the subcontinent that we're next to. Uh, but still, um, I know people of my generation and even younger to me um, are coming back looking for their roots or are rejecting systems that didn't um, serve us right that robbed us of our future, basically. And I think I'm blessed to be amidst a generation that is much more ecologically and socially conscious um, to create a better future, at least for ourselves or for our children. Um, so where can we really help them enter into um, this whole status of course correcting? How do we co-create um, what has gone wrong all along? Um, what is the entry point? How do we switch the narrative? for the 21st century? Fascinating question. So many of my heroes and heroines are actually from, from the region. Uh, Asha DeVos, I mean, I cannot think of a more amazing oh human God. being yes. who changes the narrative in terms of this is my my sea, I understand it, come along, let's all be marine biologists. Sally Mulhak, who is probably yes. the leading figure on climate change, is making the argument about loss and damage. We need to understand that being stewards means we're responsible to our communities. Wherever we live, I mean, uh, our own personal circumstances or, or trajectories might take us elsewhere, but stewardship means you are responsible to those people. And, and, and of course, you know, I, I really, you know, admire people who go back and work in those spaces, but if that's not possible, it does not mean we can't contribute in different ways. More particularly, um, this is an argument, which is not a nationalistic argument. It's an argument about where you live and what knowledge you have. Mm -hmm. And I say this because in South Asia in particular, we are in a moment globally as well, where nationalism seems to be the idea that, you know, it, what's your passport mm -hmm. rather than what you know about places. And so historically, I mean, for me, the reason Sri Lanka is so important is because of the multiple ecological soils that exist. It's a microcosm. Yes. And in that way, it's a marvelous place to study. And I don't mean experimental in the colonial sense. I mean, actually, it's, it's a natural world that we can understand. It's a fantastic aspect. And it is equally important for all the other island economies of the world, which may not be so well placed to do it. So kind of collaborative co-production is something that will be really important. And secondly, I think that the feature that it's very valuable is to reconsider what land means, mm -hmm. the multiple meanings of land. We don't need more land. We need less land and to use it better, which mm -hmm. then allows land to be used for other things. And I'm not being uh, romantic. I'm not saying there's so much land because, of course, South Asia is very densely populated. But I'm saying thinking about future land use is something that allows us to course correct. Um, and I mean things like landfills, you know, the way we produce even ourselves is not necessarily the most sustainable. So you think about what can we let go of? How can we change the trade off? So there's no free lunch, but we think about it in a different way. Absolutely. And when you touch on the point of land, it's very, very interesting um, and sad in a, in, a, in a way. I mean, Sri Lankan economy is largely agricultural. Um, even though we have a very, very powerful and strong um, service sector, which contributes largely to the economy, but the agriculture sector is where the largest group of people are employed in. Um, and there's a lot of agricultural land in our country, which is really abundant in its, um, like you said, richness. 
um, of, of the soil, of the environment, and really, you know, the monsoons coming in at the right time and the conditions, basically. Um, I'm happy to say that compared to a lot of other uh, South Asian neighbors, we are still home to a very unpolluted um, ecological environment uh, comparatively. But unfortunately, um, there's archaic policies and models really that isn't really serving us, right? As an example, the paddy lands um, that are there um, in the country. I mean, we import rice. We are not self-sustaining um, in our rice consumption and still um, the major part of the country consumes rice for all their three meals. So um, it's, it's, it's a very, very um, uh, large import um, in terms of um, the crops that we consume. But the paddy land in Sri Lanka, which are even unutilized or underutilized, uh, legislatively, nobody can use that land for anything else, not even a greenhouse, not even for a different crop, uh, not even for an, any other agricultural um, uh, crop or growth, um, even to experiment, none of that is possible. It needs to be used for um, paddy only. And that itself, you know, narrows the window for anybody um, to really experiment um, or to take a step further to break through and, and create something um, new and different for us. So there's a lot of systemic issues that we um, have to um, address. I think in a very innovative way we can. Um, if, if there is a worry of buildings coming up in these lands, there's different ways to, I think, um, address that and, and um, minimize the damage. I think you um, raised an important issue there. Absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more. Professor, I want to um, also draw your attention to um, your experience working in the Africa as well as uh, South Asia. You've interacted with a lot of communities, and I think in your um, uh, in your work as a professor um, and also um, working in the departments of land economy um, and at University of Cambridge, you've also encountered. Um, a lot of bodies who are working at a policy level. Um, how does the interaction really work as of now with communities and, and governments? How, what does that, what kind of implications does it have um, to this ecological problem that we are facing? And what would you like to actually see changing in order for the conditions to improve for the communities of South Asia? So you're previous comment actually raised that issue of how government policy can often be an obstacle to, to changes that communities may want. As you said, the intention may be good. Usually governments have good intentions, otherwise they won't get elected in the first place. But uh, often the policies are either outdated or it's difficult to change them or governments are pulled in different directions. So you can do land use without necessarily saying rice must be grown in X or Y place. Um, but we all know that there is a, a cost to change. You know, the governments are, are concerned about change. So another way of thinking about it, as you said, what do community want? What can communities feasibly do if they're given the right kind of incentives? Some things they may not be able to do. So, for example, if you say you want to move people from producing rice to producing. So the work that we're doing a lot of South Asia will see higher temperatures and more variation in water, which means that the water hungry crops like uh, mm. rice may not be cultivable. And we may have to return to millets, which was the normal set of crops that we grew because you simply cast the seed and you, you yes. didn't actually need the water buns that are such a classic part of rice cultivation across South and Southeast Asia. 
But these are the areas which traditionally had millets, so they are themselves indigenous crops to the region. And I'm not, you know, saying that we must completely shift, but we have had diets, we've had foods that allow us to think about this. But more importantly, and on a larger scale at national policy making, a lot of policy officials, be it in, in, in India in our recent Tigris project, uh, UKRF under the sister project in Ethiopia and Gambia on millets, the farmers will only be able to cultivate those things for which there's a profit. Mm-hmm. So if government wants to give farmers opportunities, they have to come in as facilitators. It's not simply mm-hmm. removing a subsidy, adding a subsidy. So when governments or even international NGOs think, oh, communities don't know, we're going to tell them what to do, mm-hmm. you're bound to fail. Uh, not because uh, you've got a wrong policy idea, but you have to convince communities and nothing convinces them more than income generation rising. Mm-hmm. So the point I'm making is that everything is not infinitely possible. You can shift a trade-off. Mm. You can say, if you invest so much for so many years, we'll risk ensure that you can be part of this value chain. We've seen that has worked. Mm. We've also seen, and much less of this is being done than it should be, and that is the idea of diversifying rural sectors. The value added is in processing products. Mm. So why are we selling our cinnamon or our coconut or our pepper as simply the raw product and the processing value and the grading. And that's where the value added comes in the middle-class market is not done in the country. These are ideas that we need to develop. And for this, we need collaboration across countries because the certification of these is much too expensive for small farmers. And if we take the example of a country in South Asia, Bangladesh, which is amazingly in growth rates. Mm -hmm. Its movement to shrimp farms was lauded as very good. But if there is no certification of shrimp in the country and you have to go to Southeast Asia to do it, by the time most of your shrimps are no longer worthy of being sold, right? So (laughs) some of these logistics cold chains have also to be thought about. Mm -hmm. So my concern is often rather than, you know, I understand the frustrations, government saying it's the private sector's fault or private sector saying farmers are not listening. We need to think about platforming across sectors. Um, and the intention is there is room for all of us. We need to be willing to listen and, and think about solutions. So I am hopeful that at least these conversations are going forward. That's one thing that's coming out of the climate crisis, I think, despite the global not, not doing its share in terms of thinking about the, the funds that it promises, The Global Mm -hmm. South, it's there every day. I mean, we only have to look, unfortunately, at the news or listen to the radio every day to know this is happening. Oh, it's a step out of the door. Um, I think your your point on, uh, there's a lot of things that's giving me goosebumps right now. Firstly, I think um, your your perspective or comment on value-added products and diversifying the um, local uh, economies and communities um, as Good Life X is something that we took on to do, I think, about three and a half years ago. Um, to now. Um, the Sri Lankan um, entrepreneurial sector is a place that I come from. I was attached to uh, the development sector before and we created a spin-off called The Good Life X, which really worked with entrepreneurs who are working on solving ecological problems along agriculture, food, wellness, all of these are interconnected things as well as tourism because they're connected to nature-based value chains and they could do it better. Um, And Sri Lanka holds a massive value um, if we do it differently and if we do it better. Um, When I began this work, um, somebody who was very well intending, who is a VC investor, told me, Randra, why are you wasting your life? Why are you wasting your time? What's in food? What are you trying to do? Um, It's it's just going to be a waste. Uh, Three years down the line, he's now investing into agriculture. 
So this is change that is happening, although the generation where conventional money comes from is not quick to recognize it. Um, I think um, work happening on the ground and people uh, like yourself and people like Asha and many other people that we have um, who are being um, uh, stewards of, of, of this voice carries it out as an important thing to do. Um, on the other hand, um, you spoke about um, um, value addition is one. You, so, you spoke about everybody having to do their part and having to work together. Um, I am a huge believer of breaking silos. Um, and one of the biggest things that I have experienced in my life, very short life, is that people really reinvent the wheel over and over again on their own and build silos of excellence um, without really you know, solving it together. I think that also comes from the way education works. Um, I mean, being here at Oxford for the past two months, I've never experienced interdisciplinary work as much as I have here. And that's fantastic. So many different things comes out of it. And that could be the same to us, um, South Asia. I think we were there. Again, the shift that happened to us during the colonial era and after really took that away from us. And on the other hand, um, Building parallels. This is something that I'm actually studying into right now. Um, so many of us can really wait, wait for innovation or changes to happen from top down. Um, but I think that's a forever wait. If I look at my parents' generation, they're going through the same issue. They went in their 30s again, and I'm 30 now. Um, so I don't think systemic changes really can be expected to be coming from, um, from uh, governments or from the top, but needs to be built parallelly. Um, in your work, have you recognized um, any movements, any players, um, maybe really very small, maybe very community-based or even individuals who are doing work that are building parallels, which makes people come together and make such changes um, in their communities and societies, if you could give an example? Really good question. And, 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 and so I think the kinds of platforming that we have seen in the last two decades is, is very exciting. Not all of it has uh, been scaled up and, and something for, you know, people in the startup world and, 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 and entrepreneurship to think about, you know, what kind of um, disruptive technologies actually can scale up. And if they don't scale up, what are the, the obstacles? What are the um, particular uh, weakest links that we need to be addressing? So as I mentioned, for, for much of the horticulture sector, it's a cold, cold chain. We really need to think about the cold chain. We grow. But at the same time, the cold chain will only work if we provide quality products. So farmers have to be able to improve the per unit quality of each. And, and horticulture works for this mangoes, grapes. All of these are high value products. So we see it. We see good practice where the returns are easy. Um, the low hanging fruit, if I may say that in the horticulture sector. Yes. But, but it is still a challenge in, in other sectors where, where you think about it. So South Asia, there's been some amazing work in, in relation to textiles, improving the sector, be it in you know, mm. the post-Primark world and trying to improve quality and standards, um, the Rana Plaza scandal. Uh, but, but, and, and you can see this in terms of livelihoods, which I um, foreshadowed at the outset of my comments. For lots of rural communities, choices between going to an urban informal sector job or being able to live closer to home for a better value job. And this is something that, for example, the mobile phone revolution has done for South Asia. You know, and in the gender dimension, young women are able to move from home to the next district or next ward because they can call their parents or th their families and, and they know they're safe. Um, 
it doesn't break uh, uh, all gender barriers, but it does facilitate mobility, which is a good thing. Um, the other thing that comes out of this is a lot of, as you said, our education system in South Asia is not of the quality that we would wish. But a lot of learning happens, you know, albeit because of the gaps in the system through mobile phones, through other systems. But we need to integrate this better with the formal education system or the lifelong education system. And there's no reason with life expectancies in their 80s in some parts of South Asia, this should not be thought of. And these are areas where the private sector and civil society can come in. And they come in in so many ways. I mean, in some areas you get a young man or woman um, saying, I want my grandmother to learn reading. Mm. And it's done in the, in the form of, they have to read the scriptures or the texts and that's acceptable. But it means that the whole generation of women who were not literate formally are yes. made literal. So, you know, I don't, see a lack of entrepreneurship. I see an abundance of entrepreneurship, but I see challenges in taking a good idea and converting into a corporate enterprise. And so instead of all of us going to study MBAs, and I have nothing against good MBA schools, but I think taking what we've learned to these schools to learn how to raise them to categories, thinking of you know people in their mid-40s doing studies um, might be helpful. I think the one thing South Asia has is what we call the degree disease. We keep wanting to get degrees before we start our lives. I think learning <laughs> yes. has to be something that we think about through our lives. And I guess I can get away with saying that because I am of South Asian heritage. You know, it's something we've all grown up with. So I think there are possibilities for change. Um, I think civil society does need uh, to work uh, with corporates, as I said before, because I think without certification, without getting that kind of um, recognition, often what we produce remains what is called artisanal, even in our corporate world, yes. right? As somehow it is valued lesser. Uh, yeah. our, our individual skills, our human capital is recognized globally, but our ability to build isn't. Mm. And I think there we need to have more um, institutional um, foundational support to do that. 100%. And I'm right on with you on the point of, you know, an ounce of practice is generally worth uh, more than a ton of theory. Um, and I, think and I am so it, impressed. There are so many people who are in their 50s now who took that route, even more in their 40s and 30s. And, and that is really impressive that it can be done. People want to do it. That's good. That's really good stuff. Absolutely. And I think now it's a great time because we have more and more early people coming in from early 20s who really want to work with their hands and go back to really um, experiential learning, even if I may say so, as opposed to getting their third MBA or, or you know, going into a PhD at 27. Um, so it's, 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 uh, I think the world is changing in many nodes and forms as much as it is driving towards um, uh, catastrophic conditions um, with, uh, with uh, the type of megalomaniac rule that we have also. But I think it, it's, um, it's, uh, it needs to move to both ends in order to come to the center. So that's what we're experiencing now. Um, Professor, it's been a fantastic conversation with you. I would like to and would love to keep on going on about uh, food and our habits and you know, um, what we really can derive from our cultures. But um, I think we can build on this conversation more and more and do, um, I think, more deep diving into your research areas in, in a future day as well. Thank you so much for taking your time. And I hope that South Asia will have many more of you who will really transition this knowledge to us and um, inspire us to do more and more where we come from, because um, we need 
what we need right now is um, rooted solutions which are globally relevant. And I think advocates like you really help us get there. Thank you. Well, thank you. I think what's inspiring to me is the next generation of, of young entrepreneurs and scholars, activists, uh, government officials, everybody thinking through it is uh, both our responsibility and it is our opportunity to make a change. And so it's fantastic. I'd be delighted to come back and talk another time. Thank you. Thank you.